Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to the Bunker Daily, where we talk to interesting people from a safe distance. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday, and the main feature-length Bunker podcast on Wednesday mornings. So subscribe and let us keep you entertained and informed for the duration of the crisis. Plus, replacing our live show, there's a Bunker vs. Romaniacs live stream with some of our panel happening this Thursday, right after the national round of applause for the NHS at 8pm. Follow us on Bunker underscore pod to find out the details. My guest today is Ellie May O'Hagan, seasoned commentator for the likes of The Guardian and currently working on a book called The New Normal. Hi, Ellie. Thanks for joining me. Um, how are you? Which, as you mentioned, is it's quite a loaded question these days. Um, well, I'm well and I'm in moderately good spirits, which I think is a win. Um, but yeah, I think I share the same worries as most of your listeners, you know, worries about how long this is all going to last, what this means for the world, I'm worried about my family. So, yeah, that's what mm. I told you. Yeah, very similar, similar situation. Um, well, we've been told, of course, uh, that Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine, so everybody should be using the time off from going out and seeing people to write our masterpieces. Has that, has that been your experience, or has, <laughs> has it proved a little harder? to um to concentrate i mean i think that um if if social media is anything to go by sourdough is the king Lear. <laughs> and i don't like sourdough bread so i'm not doing that i've worked a lot which i'm actually very grateful for because so many people can't do that it's been good to feel like i'm contributing something at this time then over the weekend, I sort of didn't make any plans because obviously you can't go out. And actually not doing anything was, was actually quite stressful. <laughs> so I think next weekend I am going to fill my weekend with wholesome activities because actually not doing anything on the weekend is, uh, is sort of, yeah, I don't think that's very good. But no, I'm not doing anything particularly wholesome. I suppose my, I do have a challenge to run 50 miles over the next month. So I suppose that's my my wholesome thing. But. Well, tell me a bit. Tell me, it's a bit early for promo, but let me tell me a little bit about about the new normal and and does indeed do do the do current events sort of change uh, the conclusion of the book? Tell me a little no, bit about what it's about. No, they um they they confirm the conclusion conclusion of the book more starkly than I had ever expected. Um, so the new normal is basically trying to explain how the sort of um how the modern centre ground was formed um, and then how it fractured, which I suggest in the book started as a result of the financial crisis, but then sort of continued over the next, how many years is it now, 12 years. And I've sort of argued that though there will be sort of a resurgences of the kind of centre ground politics in the coming years and we're sort of seeing bits of that at the moment with for example you know joe biden doing very well in the us actually we're heading towards an era of constant instability because the material circumstances of this era mean that we can never go back to a time of stability and that, that we'll always be experiencing political shocks and i didn't expect that thesis to be proved quite so aggressively so quickly yeah. Right. Yes. This is the, the kind of shock, perhaps, that was uh, perhaps even greater than than you expected. Yeah, and sooner, sooner than I expected as well. Um, 
Yeah, the decade starts with a bang. Um, last week, you wrote a piece of The Guardian about how the government was ignoring the self-employed. Two days later, surely not a coincidence, Rishi Sunak announced some measures to help the self-employed. Um, but before I talk about the kind of measures, just want to see that you mentioned in the piece that you spoke to a lot of people. And I suppose when people think of the self-employed, they often kind of don't comprehend the range of jobs that that includes. Can you give me an idea of what, of the people you spoke to from, from kind of, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other and, and what self-employed means? Yeah, so, uh, you know, at, at the sort of lowest end of the scale, and by low I mean lowest paid end of the scale, you know, you have um, sort of, you know, delivery drivers, sort of delivery drivers and that and that kind of thing. But you also have, right, at the very top, you have, you know, award-winning film directors. Of course, they're all self-employed. They've They've been pretty shafted by buy everything as well because everybody sort of lives within their means and once you take those means away then everybody's screwed so yeah it really really does the people that I've spoken to really it really does represent all sections of um society I don't think there's a single sector of society that doesn't uh, rely on the work of self-employed people, and these are people. I mean, because a freelance—I mean, as a freelance writer, it's like these are not exactly golden times. But these are some of the people you're talking about. They lost like a hundred percent of their income. Like if you're a, as I said, film director, you're stand-up comedian, or if your job so purely involves being out and about and in front of people, these are people where it's not just their income is being reduced; it just sort of evaporates. Yeah, all of them. All of the people mm. I spoke to had lost 100% of their income by the time I spoke to them. And we're not saying that's representative of, I'm not saying they're all self-employed people, but, um, you know, I, perhaps the people that wanted to get in touch with me would be more likely to be because mm. they wanted someone to talk to. But, um, no, yeah, they'd all, and much earlier than the government was was talking about as well. So it was by, so it was about 10 days ago from today that they had all lost their income. I spoke to someone who'd lost it before, even before that, all, all of it. Um, and it's not just, you're, you're absolutely right to say that those who are doing jobs that rely on, you know, the sort of assumption that we're all going to be hanging out with each other, obviously they are um, not in a good position. But also the people that they, you know, the, the people that they employ that aren't necessarily directly doing their job. So, so for example, one person that I spoke to was a clothes maker, but she made clothes for the Royal Academy's events, you know, but the Royal Academy isn't having any events, so she doesn't have any clothes to make. It's not just the directly the kind of events people and the sort of cafe owners. It's also the people that rely on the existence of events and cafe owners indirectly. So it really is bigger and worse than I think has been presented in the in the media so far. Well, if people haven't followed it, can you explain roughly what the Chancellor's new measures that announced last week mean, and who who gets help, and and, and other people who still fall through through the cracks? So the Chancellor has um, offered self-employed people a sort of a similar scheme to employees, which is that. Um, the government will pay 80% of self-employed people's wages and there is a cap of uh, £2,500 a month. So you won't be paid more than £2,500 a month. There are many problems 
with this. Obviously, I, I appreciate that many of your listeners will listen to that and think, well, that sounds good. But it, it, that actually, it, there aren't, it isn't that good. There are many problems with it. So the first problem is um, self-employed people, even the ones that qualify, won't get any help until um, June, which is going to destroy a lot of people's lives because these are people who have imminent bills to pay. They have imminent rents to pay. Um, lots of self-employed people, particularly in London, are also renters because of the housing costs. So they have imminent rent to pay. They have imminent bills to pay. And many of them have, especially the seasonal workers, which is more people than you might think, because it's not just people who work in tourism. It's anybody whose business picks up over the summer. And uh, those people, they've all they've just spent lots of money on equipment and stock because we were just heading into the summer months. So some of them have started off, they have, they're already in debt and then they've just lost because their, their plan was to, you know, accrue profit over the summer season to pay back that debt. Um, the second is that if you have made a limited company so that you can be paid via a limited company and you're not just registered as a sole trader, which many people do, who are self-employed, for some reason you're excluded from this. Um, that includes many people like working in the arts and, and so on because they were told by tax advisors that it was easier and more efficient. Um, and also anyone who earns above £50,000 is expected to have, um, sorry, has profits of over £50,000, is expected to have a sort of nest egg that can, that can cushion them. Um, and I, I'm sure that your listeners might think, well, £50,000 is a lot of money. Why should we help people like that? But really the principle is you want minimal disruption in the economy. So you don't want anybody losing their homes. And it's not just because the principle of homelessness is bad. It's also because lots and lots of people losing their homes and losing their livelihoods is extremely disruptive. And you really want your economic packages, if, if you're a government, to create the conditions for us to return to normal as quickly as possible. And that means the minimum amount of people having sort of shocks to their livelihood. And these self-employed, um, these this package doesn't really cover that. And also, you know, I, I know people who are continuing to work who are self-employed um, doing five-day weeks because they don't have any other choice and, and for public health reasons that's extremely dangerous and the, the less help the government gives, the more people work, the longer the restrictions continue, the more we have to stay inside, but also the more the economy suffers. So it doesn't make any sense either to exclude all of these people. Going back to the, the, the politics and, and Richie, Richie Sunak, there was a number cruncher Bloomberg poll over the weekend that put his approval rating at 77%, Boris Johnson at 72%, Tories overall 54 to Labour's 28 Now, given that there have been many uh, criticisms of the government's response from, from all sides, it hasn't been particularly um, a kind of politicised uh, criticism. Did those numbers surprise you? or I mean, did you... Is this just a sort of a temporary rally round the flag effect that people just, they, they want to trust the people in charge? Um, no, it doesn't surprise me because, you know, it, I think it's quite, it's quite common for um, times of national emergency 
um, to create very high approval ratings for the uh, sitting government because it is a time um, where people want to and need to trust in authorities. You know, we've got to remember that Neville Chamberlain's approval ratings were 68% when um, he was overthrown. I'm not saying that this government is going to be overthrown. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that high approval ratings are pretty standard and um, in times of national emergency. And they also, I don't think, you know, reflect the performance of the government necessarily. And that, so, for example, uh, Ian Kershaw writes, and I'm not making this comparison, I'm just talking about the principle of high approval ratings, that in the late 1930s, Hitler had 95% approval ratings. And just to be very clear that I'm not comparing this government with that government at all. You're, you're um, comparing him to Neville Chamberlain, but not Hitler. Yeah, but what, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just alluding to the principle of very, very bad leaders can have very, very good approval ratings. It's not a reflection on how well the leader is doing necessarily. Having said that, I also think that Labour has been absolutely abysmal at this time, which I sort of, and I do understand in some ways, I understand that, you know, they have an outgoing leader who is sort of key to keeping the seat warm effectively. And then, you know, the three, there are three candidates um, who aren't in the position of leader yet. Um, and I also understand that there's perhaps a fear that, that um, they may end up criticising something that actually the science proves right and then they will look like they've stuffed it up. But I think, you know, there are certain things that are very obviously very bad, like NHS staff not getting the right pr protective kit, you know, like the, the government forgetting to read an email, so therefore not being able to be part of the, the ventilator EU procurement scheme. These are very obviously um, bad things that has happened um, as a result of the government's activities and i think that labor has been far too meek and silent in criticizing those things well i mean C corbyn um in the same poll his dissatisfaction rating was, was was pretty poor um i mean he's ending his leadership on a low but sort of in a weird sort of anticlimactic state that, that you know I, a lot of people i was anyway very engaged in the labor leadership race um you know that it was taking on a lot of kind of um column inches and now it's just sort of um it's sort of an irrelevant. There's almost no time to discuss, kind of, you know, the end of the the Corbyn era and, you know, the arrival of of Starmer. What would you like to say? I mean, there's a lot. There's there's a lot we could go into, but you know, it was always said that kind of the movement would, was was bigger than the man. And now that there is quite a lot of talk about what do you keep from the last four and a half years? What was positive? And um, we would like to see the next leader, who we presume is Starmer, uh, taking forward. And what would you leave behind? Are you, as you're somebody who's been a, a, on the Labour left, but not uncritical. So I'm just interested in what your your ideal sort of scenario of what you what you take from the Corbyn era moving forward. Um, the, the what I would take is the policies, particularly the green industrial revolution. At the end of the day, the biggest threat that we still face is climate change. Also, public ownership, proper investment in public services. I think the um, the general uh, belief that I think was present in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, which is that um, government exists 
to care for people and to provide for people and to make people's lives better. And that government also exists to stand up to uh, big business and, you know, those that, those sort of institutions and individuals that exploit ordinary people. What I'd like to be, leave, see left behind is um, I would like to see the next Labour leader um, not engage in so many pointless fights and not waste so much political capital on things that either don't matter or are actively bad. You know, so what I mean by that is, for example, the anti-Semitism crisis. I think that that was something that I don't understand why the Labour leadership wasted so much political capital on not acting on anti-Semitism. It doesn't make any sense to me. And there were lots of, you know, examples like that, I think, when under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, particularly with Labour's relationship with the media, which was which was very antagonistic. And I, of course, the media, I think, held Jeremy Corbyn to absurd standards, completely different standards to any other political leader. But I think the leadership often reacted to that by sort of picking unnecessary fights with the media. And I actually think that they should have got on with the job and of communicating their message to the public. So I think keeping policies and jettisoning the pointless fights I mean, before we go, Corbyn and, and, and sort of others on the left have pointed out quite rightly that, you know, this emergency budgets uh, prove that, you know, that government can spend huge amounts of money to protect vulnerable people. You know, that the state, that people, uh, you know, do turn to the state to, to, to do major things which are sort of beyond the ability of the market. When this is over, when the, when the, when the, the virus crisis is over, what would you like to sort of see become normalised? and become more permanent that that in the ideal scenario where we don't just snap back to where we were before um what do you think people might have got used to in the way that people became used to certain things in wartime and then didn't want to let go of them uh after ve day well i think actually what what you just mentioned there it sort of explains why the government has been quite slow with introducing things like payments for self-employed people and so on um I think be, I think they are worried that if they give people too much, that they then won't be able to take it back. Um, I mean, I'd like to keep all of it because that's because I'm <laughs> a socialist, and I think and I do believe in governments spending lots and lots of money to make people's lives better, and I do believe that that is is possible. I also think that we need to talk about what we define as an emergency. You know, I think. 150 women a day being turned away from domestic violence shelters, as was the case in 2013. That was an emergency. Um, but it wasn't met with government funding. And um, climate change is an emergency. But there's been virtually nothing done about that. First of all, I hope that it will improve our immigration laws. So we've already seen that Pris Patel has been under some pressure to review what the definition of an essential worker is. Because it turns out that people who earn over £45,000 a year or, or whatever the threshold is are not essential. Actually, people like bin collectors and care workers, they're essential. Mm. Um, so I hope, you know, that we'll have a review of immigration law. And I hope the fact that so many people now know what it's like to be separated from a loved one that you're worried about and that you can only talk to over Skype. I hope that that will also um, provide the empathy that will lead to a review of immigration law. I hope that. Um, this has demonstrated how easy it is to end homelessness. I hope that we now recognize who are the essential workers 
who the people are that keep society together and that they are paid properly and treated well. Um, I hope that the NHS is never stripped of so much funding as it has been over the last 10 years. Um, I hope that the 43,000 nurse vacancies are finally filled and that people are welcomed into this country who can fill those vacancies. And I, I basically, I hope that we all realise that none of us are safe from poverty and illness and that we need to create a society that cares for everybody if, who is at risk of those things, because that's all of us. Well, thanks, uh, Ellie Mayo-Hagen, uh, commentator, author of The New Normal. Good luck with your writing and running this week. Thanks for listening to The Bunker Daily. We'll have another episode tomorrow with Ian Dunt in the chair, and I'll be back for Wednesday's main show. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or favourite us on Spotify. And if you've got time to leave us a review, we'd be very grateful. Stay safe. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>